Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm Ash Milton, Managing Editor at Palladium Magazine. Uh, today, we're continuing our series with authors who have contributed to Palladium 4. Palladium 4 is our newest print edition. The theme is Cultivating Elites, and it is available to subscribers. Uh, if you are interested in getting this and future print editions of the magazine, go to palladiummag.com slash subscribe. Uh, you can sign up there, and uh, this is a quarterly journal, so four times a year you'll get uh, your copy on whatever theme we happen to be focusing on. So today we're speaking with Charles Coulomb. Uh Charles is a writer, he's a columnist, and he's author of more books than I can list here. Uh, a couple I'll bring up, Star Spangled Crown, Puritan's Empire. His most recent work was uh, one on the Emperor Karl, uh, or in English, the Emperor Charles of Austria. Can you just give us the title of that book, Charles? Yeah, it's called uh, Blessed Emperor Charles, The Legacy of a Holy Emperor. And Charles uh, is currently dividing his time, I believe, between Austria uh, and Los Angeles. So Charles, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I think it's your first time on. Is there anything else you want to boost at the moment uh, uh, in terms of what you're working on or projects? Uh, well, I suppose I, I should definitely mention my podcast, uh, off the menu, which is available to Tumblr House uh, channel on YouTube. Uh, I'm also writing, uh, in addition to Palladium, I'm writing for the European Conservative, uh, for Crisis Magazine, uh, Catholicism.org, and uh, that's about it at the moment. Uh, it's enough to keep me busy. Okay, well, on that note, uh, first, uh, I guess, let's, let's kind of recount uh, some of your piece. Now, we're not going to go over the whole piece in this show. Uh, for though it's on the website, and for those who have the print magazine, uh, you'll have received it as well. The piece was called "America's Late Ruling Class." Now, the basic focus that we had here, uh, as you know, as a magazine, we're, we, we've been interested in this question of elites for a long time. Now, America actually had, for a number of decades, maybe a century or so, a very official, uh, sort of recognized, formed cultural, social, and to a degree business elite, right? And we call these people the wasps. But who are these people, right? I think people have this idea of who the wasps are. I think a lot of people don't know very much about them. And so for us, the, the goal of this piece was to learn more about who was this historic American elite. So we get a look from the inceptions of these uh, you know, largely Protestant, largely Anglo-Saxon families. Uh, they're in different cities. They're, they're the American elite from before the revolution, uh, but then the revolution happens and over the next century or so, they eventually coalesce from a bunch of local elites into this very uh, self-conscious American ruling class. But then, as, as you show us in the piece, uh, they fall almost as quickly as they solidify. And over the 20th century, you get a lot of competition from you know rising new business interests. You get a lot of cultural self-critique from within the WASP class itself. You get a lot of crisis narrative about the demographic decline. And I would say basically by the 1970s, we no longer have much of a, a WASP ruling class, as it were. Is that sort of uh, the gist of how you see the history here? Uh, and, and what for you, uh, I guess just as an opening question, was is the most important, the most interesting aspect of looking at this history of this American elite? Yeah, I, I would say it's, it, that's a fair casting of my, uh, my assertion in the article. The thing that I find fascinating about them 
is how they were able to do so well for so long with a kind of synthetic overarching ethos that was uh, flexible enough to encompass all of their many internal differences with one another uh, and yet give them sufficient unity to function. And that in itself was kind of a microcosm of the country as a whole uh, because they, they started out with sort of a shared uh, moral consensus at the dawn of the country's existence. Uh, and to that, they added a uh, more or less sincere, but nevertheless constructed cult of the country itself. American history became a sort of salvation history, uh, a biblical narrative rather than history per se, so that the, uh, the founding fathers were a bit like the apostles, you know, and the, the Constitution was virtually brought by the Holy Spirit and all that kind of thing. The flag and the uh, the Constitution, all that was sacred, and these took the place very much because of the op of the the way the wasps did things. These took the place of a shared uh, church and a, and a shared monarchy. They, however, really animated it. They and I, I they were sincere in it. You know, it's funny when you say that uh, it was synthetic and constructed and all that. It makes it sound like it was just phony and they were putting it together for whatever reason. But they really believed it. And that's, you know, there's a, a film called The Good Shepherd, which uh, is based on the uh, adventures of a uh, CIA uh, man. He's asked by one of, he's a, very much a wasp, a Yale member of Skull and Bones and all that. And he's asked by uh, an Italian mafioso. He says, you know, we Italians, we've got this, the blacks have that, the Irish have the other. What do you people have? And the character responds, we have the United States. The rest of you are just visiting. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a sense of ownership, right? That, that this is like uh, our country, not just in this, in this like civic citizenship sense, but literally our ancestors built the country, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. um, you know, it's kind of funny, right? Because we, uh, you know, you, you hear topics like nationalism now um, come up in the discourse, but the, the in, in like purely biological terms, right, or, or demographic terms, the people who built the United States, it's not even, you know, especially in, in terms of its institutions, it's not really correct to think of it as a, a, a population on that kind of large national or, or ethnic scale. I mean, these were literally on the scale of like family networks, uh, you know, pro probably, you know, a few hundred families uh, or a few hundred extended clans that came together and built a country. I mean, that is the scale on which political action occurred on the American continent. Um, and it's a very different way of looking at this than these kind of uh, grand narratives, you know, of, of nations or peoples in this like very bloodless uh, abstract sense rising up. And, and of course, too, you, you've got to bear in mind that uh, while there was certainly continuity among them, there was also change. Uh, the, uh, the Southern element was sort of defanged by the Civil War. And the Northern element, uh, was subsumed by uh, banking and uh, industrial uh, money, as it were. 
So uh, this is why if you read people like uh, the brothers Henry and Charles Adams, who were the, uh, uh, the grandsons of President John Quincy Adams, you read their, their writings in the late, uh, late 19th, early 20th centuries, they're complaining about the new men, the robber barons of the Gilded Age, etc. But these are people that we think of looking backward, like the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts, as charter members of the WASP fraternity. And that wasn't actually entirely true. It was true that they were of similar ethnic backgrounds. But I, I remember um, the last Lord of the Manor of Gardner's Island, Robert Lyon Gardner, who died about 10 years ago. But Gardner's Island is in Long Island Sound, and the, the Gardners have been literally lords of the manor since the 1600s. And I remember his, uh, his saying that uh, as far as his grandmother was concerned, the uh, Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts were all nouveau riche and not to be received. <laughs> <laughs> Even the Vanderbilts, that's interesting. Well, well, their physical roots went back to the early days. Right, but they're Dutch. But well, Perhaps. so the, the Gardners, they were railroad men. They were railroad men. They were they were they were new money. Their 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 ethnicity went back as far as the Gardners, but their prominence was very nineteenth century, the Gilded Age, and of course it was during that period that a lot of what we think of as waspery was really constructed. Uh, the transformation of uh, of the Ivy League in the imitations of Oxford and uh, Cambridge and of the uh, so-called St. Grundlesex schools, the, the major boarding schools in imitation Eaton's. That was all late 19th century when the, the sons of the robber barons were made into gentlemen. And that, you know, it, 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 it didn't really, to us, it, the, the differences don't look that great. But obviously, the participants were, you know, the old joke, oysters look different to other oysters. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I'd like to spend actually a little bit of time on that, that theme of construction, because I think it sets up the stage nicely for just how short lived, like the, the real period where the wasps come into their own as that kind of class is. Uh, so, you know, you, you sort of start out by mentioning, well, we don't have a national class here at all. If you look at the 1600s, if you look at the 1700s maybe even the early 1800s, um, you have a series of cities, right? We have uh, New York, we have Philadelphia, uh, as you mentioned, we have the South, maybe eventually we have DC. And I mean, these people aren't even all Anglo-Saxon specifically, right? So we've mentioned the Dutch here. The Dutch, the, the Germans in Philadelphia. So where, I mean, I guess a good question is like, where are the Anglo-Saxons and why do we end up thinking of these guys as kind of like him hegemonically Anglo-Saxon? Well, there, there are a couple of reasons. One was uh, they, although their actual ethnicity was, was somewhat more varied, uh, they certainly all spoke English. And the, uh, the role of the Episcopal Church in uh, establishing cohesion among them should never be overlooked. Uh, the the Episcopal Church, as a uh, in its facet as a uh, the, the faith of the ruling class, is a fascinating thing to look at. Uh, at the time of the Revolution, they were sort of discredited to a great degree because of their connection with England. But uh, in the 
early in the immediate aftermath of the of the American Revolution, uh, American religiosity, in Protestant terms, went to two different directions: revivalism of the sort that you think of, you know, the the jumping up and down and all that, uh, and Unitarianism. And that's what the, the religious history of American Protestantism was in the 1820s and 30s. Well, the Episcopal Church stepped into the vacuum, you might say, that was created by those two things. Because obviously, there, are a lot of, there were a lot of wasps who on the one hand wanted to believe something, but they didn't want to roll around on the ground. So neither Unitarianism nor Revivalism appealed. But the Episcopal Church did. So, and then after the Civil War, it became a quasi-national church. That's why we have, from that era, dates the foundation of the National Cathedral in Washington. Uh, the the uh, things like the George Washington Memorial Chapel at Valley Forge. Uh, it, and you'll, you'll see this scattered around the states, the, uh, the given Episcopal church that was the center of Waspering. In New York, uh, apart from the cathedral of St. John the Divine, St. Thomas Episcopal Church was the, the society church. And there were, there were others in New York City alone. So uh, the Episcopal Church played a big role in, the, in giving them an identity. Uh, notice how many of the, of the uh, boarding schools I mentioned were Episcopal. Right. So the, the construction is happening through religion, through schools, um, you, and, and it's basically taking generations, right? Like, I, I think that th that's something that we, it's hard for us to imagine now, I guess, but this, um, it's a very intentional cultural construction. I mean, the, the kind of, the, the language, the values, the, the sort of religious mode what consists of respectable social mores and political opinion. All of this is stuff these people are thinking about very explicitly. Yeah. And it ends up becoming a, an actually coherent cultural force. Um, and, and sort of, as you're saying, that does not make it inauthentic. It actually, like, it's not a role play. You know, this is something that people live in and die in, right? This intergenerational cultural continuity of the wasps. And, and it's important to remember, too, that uh, especially in the last half of the 19th century, a lot of this stuff was not seen. I mean, we look back at it, and we can, we can say, well, it was constructed. But it's important to bear in mind that the people of the time often thought of it as a revival. You know, this is why, like, you had, architecturally, you had the Gothic revival. I mean, think of Ralph Adams Cram as a as a perfect example, both as a social commentator and as an architect. He was the one that made co uh, collegiate Gothic the thing in universities. Uh, the he was the designer of West Point and the, uh, the graduate school at Princeton, as well as a ton of churches around the country. Uh, and he both, uh, he was both the epitome of and a sort of catalyst for this kind of thing. Um, the colonial revival, uh, starting in 1876, which is not entirely leftist yet, also uh, made its mark. I, I think when I was a kid, you had all over the Northeast, 
these sort of faux colonial inns and taverns and restaurants, very often constructed, owned, and run by Greeks and Italians. But very, you know, old, with names like the Old Yankee Peddler and things like that. Because part of what reinforced all of this was the desire of immigrants to participate in it on its, on its own terms. The, the revival thing there is actually really interesting to me, right? Because it, it seems like when we start the story, we're, we're looking at a population that's coming to America specifically because they want to abandon something old, right? There, there's this, England has undergone the Reformation, other parts of Europe too, but a lot of people don't think it's gone far enough. They want to come to the colonies to start something new. Uh, I guess they would probably also talk about it in terms of restoring the primitive church or the Church of the Apostles or something like that. Um, so like, do you think that that restorationist kind of mindset is there from the start or does it develop later? I think, I think it develops a bit later, uh, particularly in response to the Civil War, the Second Civil War, if you will, because uh, I think there's the, uh, an argument can be made that the apogee of American nationhood was between 1865 and 1941. Uh, because prior to that time, we were more or less a confederation of semi-independent states. And after that time, we were the arsenal of democracy, we were an empire. But between the Civil War and World War II, if you think about it, from the ways we celebrate holidays to any number of things, that was really the key period in the actual construction of an American nationality that was transcendent over regional differences. I mean, the, the, the war itself, you know, the, the famous change in grammar between the United States are and the United States is, was uh, definitely reflected in that period. Uh, and that, that was when the elites became, to the degree that they ever did, that was, the, that was when they became national. I, I, I want to spend some time on that one question, I guess, that I have before, though, is, you know, um, if you kind of get into this 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 wasp history stuff, one of the names you quickly come across is E. Digby Beltzel, who is the great sort of historian of his own class. Uh, you can obviously tell from the name if you're listening that he is a wasp himself. But he, one of the distinctions that he seems to make is between an upper class and an elite, where the upper class is something like the dominant, you know, the the dominant force culturally and economically in society. But the elite, you know, it comes out of the upper class, but it is specifically that proportion that is doing political action. And um, what you seem to have is in, in, in the, the age where America becomes independent, the, the people ruling these places, right, the, the American elites that rule after independence are basically the same people who rule before independence, now minus the, the infrastructure of the monarchy and the royal governors. And what you seem to have is like uh, localized upper classes that manage to make elites that can act at the national level. And uh, I, I guess, you know, given that these, these classes seem fairly different at this period, how do you think it is that they're able to pull that off, that they're able to coordinate, you know, 13 different colonies of, of, of 
influential people together and and actually managed to secure political sovereignty basically from a king who was you know he he was more of an activist king he he had ideas of his own it seems like it should have been easy to sow division on any number of grounds but despite everything they're able to coordinate uh, which seems pretty remarkable in in a lot of ways well uh, there are several reasons for it firstly Bear in mind that they were not only heavily influenced by the Whig tradition in Britain. Uh, I mean, honestly, if if Thomas Jefferson had submitted the Declaration of Independence as an academic paper, he'd have been dinged for plagiarism from John Locke. The, the justifications that were used for the revolution were the same that were used by Locke for the so-called Glorious Revolution in 1688. Yeah, and they have a lot of support uh, in within within Parliament it, itself, right? Both the moderate and the radical Whigs. I, I think this is something we don't talk much about uh, here, but you know, the the revolution plays out in a way on both sides of the of the Atlantic. It sure does, and it uh, it's in fact it's impossible to understand the revolution uh, really unless one you realize that it was actually a civil war on both sides of the Atlantic. Politically in England, uh, militarily in the United States, well, in, in the colonies, we could say. And the proof of the pudding really is in the career of General Howe, who uh, basically threw the early part of the war. Three times he had Washington in his grasp, and he could have ended it straight away, and he wouldn't do it. Then, when uh, uh, he retires, he goes back to England, he takes up his... Uh, uh, seat in Parliament, there's a parliamentary committee of inquiry to ask him, why, why did you do that? And his response was wonderful. He said, uh, the answer to that question is political, and I choose not to give it. Oh, well, all right. Thanks a lot, General. Shut me up. So that was part of it. The second thing, of course, is that once France and Spain got involved, that was it. There was, no, there was no way that Britain could defeat uh, a reformist France, a reformist Spain. Uh, you've got to bear in mind that they had defeated them both in the Seven Years' War, partly because, uh, well, the French and the Spanish would continually run out of money because their systems were not adept at uh, squeezing the taxpayer quite the way the British system could. But there had been a great deal of reforms enacted both by uh, Louis XVI and Charles III, of Spain, and these were very different countries, militarily and navally speaking, from what the British had uh, faced in the Seven Years' War. Uh, and then, if that weren't bad enough, in the distance, as it were, was the League of the Armed Neutrality, which was the rest of Europe, centered on Austria, Russia, Prussia, uh, and the various other countries, Scandinavia. And eventually they made it clear to the British that if they didn't end the war, the armed neutrality would come in on the side of France, uh, the Netherlands, and Spain. Well, that uh, once that happened, there was simply no way that the British could win. Uh, but the, uh, the changes that happened in Britain as a result of the defeat of George III's uh, attempts at reform. Well, it, it, let's put it this way. Eric Nelson, who wrote a, a fascinating book called The Royalist Revolution that I recommend highly, uh, 
he ends it by saying that when the, uh, the revolution and the drafting of the Constitution were over, on one side of the Atlantic, you would have a monarchy without a king, and on the other side, a king without a monarchy. And people forget that. They, they don't realize that Britain was altered quite as much as America was. And of, and of course, as we know, um, in addition, and this is another element that gets left out, uh, although not, not necessarily north of the border, but the revolution was actually the start of not one, not two, not three, but four countries. Our own United States, Anglo-Canada, the Bahamas, and uh, Sierra Leone. I mean, and the, the ripple effect of that ideology comes, it cascades right through Mexico, through South America, which is also something I don't think uh, most Americans really learn about. But I mean, no. the, the republics, republics get set up all over, you know, all over the former Spanish Americas, the Portuguese Americas. Um, and even France is even France itself is looking at at, Amer at the American Republic um, as as a kind of example. So there is this ripple effect of regime flips all over the world, uh, looking at what what these families basically right, what these families across the thirteen colonies have put together. This this is very very true. I mean, and there are other effects uh, in Britain uh, apart from. Uh, torpedoing uh, George III's reform uh, reform attempts, it also uh, turned him against Catholic emancipation, which he had been completely in favor of before. Uh, but he felt betrayed by the kings of France and Spain. In France, not only did the uh, a lot of the officer corps come back infected with the ideas of, that they had picked up in America, but it bankrupted the country. Uh, and as a result, when the volcano erupted in Iceland in 1788 and caused famine in France, the government was unable, which they would have done otherwise, to either buy grain or uh, uh, empty the uh, royal granaries for the uh, famine-hit provinces. So uh, with Spain, the, uh, again, the ideas of uh, Locke and Rousseau and the rest of them, because of the American Revolution, spread amongst the upper classes in uh, Hispanic America and in Brazil. And when the time came that uh, Spain and Portugal were occupied by uh, the French, well, that opened the way for uh, that opened the way for the revolutions in the South. So yeah, I mean, now whether whether you think these were good or bad developments is a whole other issue, but the important thing is that they happened and they they happened directly as a result of these folk in America. And bear in mind that their occurrences helped solidify in the minds of those people the idea that what they were doing was something greater than simply taking power for themselves. Right. It's not just a matter of uh, we're, we're going to kind of like just take power, right? It, it's a revolutionary narrative. I mean, it was to the extent that, you know, I, I think, you know, mo people kind of hear about the loyalists, but I think what most people don't know is that the, the loyalists who did resettle in Canada, Simcoe, who was the governor there at the time, uh, he, I mean, they got land, they got kind of compensation, they got a certain amount of acclamation for their patriotism, but he did not let them have positions of influence. So, uh, the suspicion being that they had been, you know, dis despite having come over, they might have picked up uh, 
subversive ideas from having been so close to the the revolution, right? So it's kind of kind of the the virus theory of revolution, you could call it, which was not entirely untrue. And of course, it, it would uh, the shadow in Canadian history would be the latest struggle between the uh, the family compact in Ontario and uh, equivalent groups in the Maritimes and Quebec. So I mean, these these things. Uh, these things had much wider reverberations, and they continue to. I mean, what's what's interesting is that the the concept of the American Revolution as a an almost religious event, indeed you could say a religious event, is precisely what was used to create the uh, the cultus of the nation afterwards. And that's why I say when it, when I tell you it was constructed, it was artificial, and all that. That's all true. But it wasn't insincere. I mean, they really believed what they were saying and doing. Oh, people uh, had spilled blood for this thing, right? Precisely. And you, you could look, for instance, at the cultus of Washington. Now, in real life, of course, he wasn't anything like the uh, all-knowing saint that they made him into. Uh, but he was a remarkable individual, really. Uh, I mean, I, I think the apotheosis of Washington on the interior of the Capitol Dome is a bit overdone. But George III himself, when he got the news that uh, after dismissing his troops, Washington went back to Mount Vernon, uh, George III's response was, if this be true, General Washington is the greatest man of the age. The, the, the idea that Washington actually would play Cincinnatus, uh it, it uh, so I mean, it's not, let's put it this way, it's easy, certainly for me as a, a man of French-Canadian descent, uh, you know, I look at Washington, I see the man that started the Seven Years' War, uh, I look at the Declaration of Independence, and I see the Quebec Act denounced in the most Orwellian terms. So it's, it's not as though uh, you might say I'm, uh, I'm a great rah-rah for the revolution by any stretch. Nevertheless, it has to be admitted that it was a remarkable event. Yeah, I mean, our I think our general take is uh, our philosophy, let's say, is something like a, a bit of a mandate of heaven approach to these things. You know, re- rebellion is a grievous sin under heaven, unless you win, in which case it was the will of heaven. Something <laughs> like that, right? It's, uh, I, I tend to think that, yeah, the the way that these things play out is that i sort of think that people who found new regimes you know the the charlemagnes and so on the alfred the greats of history tend to actually have a very providential or you could even say forward-looking psychology in a way that their their later admirers don't actually pick up like there's often a difference between you know the great monarchs and monarchists you could say uh, I mean, I'm sort of using that example, but I think this probably holds for, you know, people who venerate the American founding. It probably holds for, uh, you know, equivalents in Japan or India or wherever people who have this kind of golden age of the past view of some regime that they're particularly fond of. I, I think that that way of looking at it is usually actually different in kind from the way that the people who actually built that regime thought about the world. Um, and maybe it was the case here as well. 
one of, one of the one of the things that has to be borne in mind too, though, as is often the case, uh, the problem that would face the revolutionaries, or more importantly, their grandchildren, was that a uh, on the one hand you had in the American character a heavy Calvinist streak, which meant that everything had to be justified in moral terms. Now that sounds great until you come to the Second Civil War. Because you're faced with a problem. Abraham Lincoln had a friend who was a stand-up comedian. And uh, having been one myself, I can tell you comedians tend to be terribly wise people. Uh, <laughs> no. But uh, they do actually, all kidding aside, they do have to have a certain insight into human character. Right. Need a feel for the thing. Precisely. So Lincoln asked his friend when, the, uh, when South Carolina and the other states started pulling out, uh, he asked him, well, what do you think? And his response was, well, if secession be a valid concept, then of course my sympathies have to be entirely with the South. If not, I can only say God save the king. Right, yeah. Yeah, if you're framing it in the terms of this kind of like a debate on principle, then, then that kind of naturally follows. Uh, I guess the kind of world historical action response would be, well, the founders won, and Lincoln also won. So there it is, right? But you see, in the in the Calvinist mindset, the moralistic yeah, mindset, that's yeah, will, that's sort of not acceptable. That's not an argument. But doesn't uh, even in the Calvinist mindset doesn't you know isn't there sort of this notion that providence demonstrates its favor through success in the world, right? So you know you gain worldly wealth, so you might be one of the elect, and things like this. It does, but unfortunately, it also brings up a great deal of self of self doubt. Right. Remember that you might the, be deceiving yourself. You might be deceiving yourself, and of course, uh, the minute the minute you you realize that you're trying to acquire wealth in order to look saved, the whole thing's blown. I, I mean, it's it's and the other the other problem with it is that if you do lose, you collapse. And I do think that that was one of the ingredients of the wasp collapse. Uh, you've seen similar uh, similar things, uh, frankly, with the Afrikaners in South Africa. Everybody everybody thought that uh, you know the diehard Afrikaners were going to fight and fight and fight. No, because yeah, it never happened. No, I mean I, I think that's often you know uh, you like frankly you know even you you can look at a lot of this. Um, call it like revolutionary role play, you know, all over the U.S. I mean, you know, and it's not politically specific, even you see sort of, uh, you know, right wing and left wing versions of this. I think the American consciousness likes to think of itself as always being on the brink of revolution. And I think this is just straightforwardly untrue. You know, I, I speaking personally here, I think that American culture is actually shockingly conformist. I mean, you know, you compare it to the kind of psychological resistance and sense of personal freedom that you get in throughout Latin and South America. Um, even though, you know, the, the political ideology tends to be more authoritarian, let's say, I think that just the personal sense that I can, you know, these laws are not mandatory and I can actually sort of exercise my own will. It's much more of an instinct uh, south of the United States than it is in the U.S. itself. I think part of the reason for that, frankly, and one reason why they tend to have authoritarian governments <clears throat> is precisely because the people have such a strongly independent sense 
Uh, it's the sort of thing where, from Mexico down, uh, you can do anything you want up to a point. And then beyond that point, somebody will shoot you. Uh, but it's the point's pretty far. With us, and by us, I mean the, the Americans, we're very conformist. Um, all you have to do is, is say something that might be unpopular at a restaurant and gauge the reaction of both of the people you're dining with and the people around you. We're very much into self-policing. Uh, but as a result, uh, when uh, often enough when our Latin American friends come up to America, they feel a tremendous rush of freedom because the bonds that Americans feel are self-imposed. And so they, they tend to misbehave. Contrary-wise, when we go down, to Latin America, we don't feel those bonds, and we tend to misbehave because we have this wonderful feeling of freedom. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> yeah, you feel the freedom that you—it's uh, a different kind of freedom, I guess. It's a, it's, it's uh, a different kind of freedom. It's freedom. It's civil freedom versus kind of like I don't want to say spiritual freedom, but let's say psychological freedom. So psychological, cultural, call it what you will. I mean, mutatis mutandis, it's like the well-known uh, and amusing uh, phenomenon here in Europe, you know, well before COVID, of course, back when people had lives. Uh, every summer, you'd have busloads of young Swedes coming down to Italy for wild times and busloads of young Italians going up to Sweden for wild times. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. People change. I mean, you know, and, and despite the 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 kind of sense of psychological freedom that people have here, like let's you know, you you talk to almost anyone uh, in. Well, I mean, here in Brazil, at least the conversations I have, uh, even people with a very high level of psychological freedom, right? There, there's a sense sometimes they would give their firstborn child to become just you know a boring middle class dad in a in a suburb of. Uh, you know, uh, Oklahoma City or something, Kansas City, uh, just ferrying their their you know their two kids back and forth from school. Right? There's this the that sense of normalcy is something that does not exist here. And anyway, this is sort of an aside. I I'd like to get a little bit more into. Um, you've kind of mentioned the the decline ultimately of the wasps. I want to spend a moment first on their their high period. Let's say so, as you mentioned, after the Civil War. Um, the the kind of civic cult of of the American upper class becomes very solidified, but then so do the institutions, right? Like these are no longer families constrained to certain cities. They're all attending the same universities as each other. You know, they're serving in the military. Some of them, they're they're a lot of them are in the Episcopal Church, as you've mentioned. So we we have kind of a national class now. But what I find interesting in your piece is. At, it's almost like at the very moment that these guys become this confident national ruling class of a country that, you know, has basically proven itself able to endure even a civil war and come out surviving and unified, you know, y y Europe, the whole world is looking at this country as, as a rising power, um, you know, pretty much only a couple of the old European powers are, are really able to challenge it. It's it's kind of throwing its weight around in the Americas. You would think that this would be a ruling class at the like the zenith of its confidence, but what you actually have is almost immediately these narratives starting of self doubt, of threats 
from these rising, you know, new classes of uh, the so-called robber barons uh, and industrialists that benefited from the Northern victory in the war. Uh, you have the cultural challenges. You have, you know, a certain degree of immigration starting. Uh, and then, you know, as as you get into the 20th century, you mentioned people like Teddy Roosevelt, who talked about just the the demographic decline even of of these families. Why is this? Like you, you've mentioned, kind of the the, the Calvinist psychology, but is that it? Uh, why do we get this self doubt starting when you would think this class should be at its most confident? Well, I I would think, frankly, it was a number of different a number of different things of which. The Calvinist mentality was one. Uh, the second is that uh, the begin the founding ideology, which, as I say, the contradictions therein came up during the Civil War. I think that they continued afterwards, um, because frankly, if you're going to say you're based on equality, where does that leave an elite? Uh, that's, I mean, that's very problematic, uh, where you, you had also at the same time, the rise of Darwinism and all that, and a corresponding rise of disbelief and secularism. Well, there, there has never been a successful elite that didn't believe that it ruled by the grace of God, however that society conceived him to be. It's very difficult to do that if you don't have a God. Um, and then it becomes a question of, okay, that's great. Why do you have your privilege? Why? And that was a, that is a question that within within the the American ideology, if you will, there was no real answer to. Um, and that I think ultimately also combined with other things, the the uh, rise of competitors, uh, the, I, I, I mean, there, there, there were cultural problems as well. It's, it's often struck me as interesting that this WASP nation uh, had its popular image, its popular entertainment, provided primarily by non-WASPs, uh, Jews, Catholics, Blacks, um, you know, my own people came down as entertainers. Uh, the 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 American self-image came to be uh, put together by people like George M. Cohan and Irving Berlin, who were sincere patriots, but they were anything but wasps. Uh, you look at the great uh, the great films like uh, Gentlemen's Agreement and so on of the nineteen twenties and thirties and forties uh, that show the quote-unquote, wasp class. Uh, these were all done by Jews and, and to a degree, Catholics. Uh, a friend of mine put it, I thought, very, very funnily. He called them wasp minstrel shows. <laughs> and so what does that, that tell you? There was a big disconnect there in, in several different areas. Uh, I think the reason why they began to fail almost as soon as they reached their apogee was precisely because there was not enough transcendence in their transcendence. I want to make a comparison here, actually, uh, and, and sort of see what you think. Right? This, this seems to happen to some 
of these kind of ruling classes with, let's say, modern ideologies. I mean, you, you look at the communists in, in, in the Soviet Union in China. I mean, there is, despite the sense that, you know, that they're kind of privy to the secrets of world history, there's immense crippling, like, self-doubt in those regimes. And it plays out through these, you know, factional battles and ideological battles and, and mass killings of opponents when when one of them comes into power. And so there, there's this kind of common pattern. But in, in the Americas, you know, look at Mexico, for instance, um, where you have, right, the, the kind of current Mexican ruling class. It, it was a revolutionary class as well. There was a revolution in Mexico. Um, you know, the, the kind of dominant party for a long time was literally the, the, the institutional revolutionary party, <laughs> That's right. uh, which I, I, an amazing name, but the, you know, the, the, the pre, <laughs> yeah, um, the pre. <laughs> but I, you know, one senses though in Mexico, right. The, for all the dysfunction of Mexican society, right. The, the lack of even state control in a lot of areas, the let's call them like the class of Mexico city one doesn't really feel any doubt from them ever at any point that they deserve to rule, right? There's this kind of, you know, we, we would perceive it even, I think, as like arrogance of, of a ruling class that, you know, no matter how badly things might otherwise go for the general population, the the kind of bourgeois ruling class of Mexico City is simply deserves to rule so wh why do you think this is then that you, you do you know you some of these even modern ruling classes seem to escape that that psychological self-doubt and others get crippled by it well i would say that uh, again there are several reasons for it uh to begin with i have to admit i'm i'm kind of uh, peculiar in the sense that i believe in objective truth um <laughs> And yeah, I know that's very bizarre and, and, and certainly, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> seriously, it's, uh, how do I put this? There, what brought our ruling class to its knees was, I say, a lack of transcendence, ultimately a lack of truth in, in their animating philosophy, but there was more that our apparatchik friends had in Moscow. Or for that matter, in Beijing. Remember, the, the current regime in Beijing only goes back to 1949. And it's had several permutations since then. Uh, the, the Russian regime lasted 1917 to 1991. Uh, who knows how much longer our friends in Beijing will continue as they have. Who knows? In Mexico and the rest of Latin America, there you've got a very, very fascinating thing. The pre-ideology is dead. It's and the proof of the pudding is the coming to power of a pan president. But it is still, as you say, very much a game in between the uh, you know in between the the top folk in Mexico City. Uh, they have no doubts. The problem with them, though, is that their power really is based purely on power. That's why it becomes increasingly difficult for them to govern the country. Unless you, unless power, well, how, how, do I, how do I put this? This is an important concept, I think. The difference between authority and power. Authority is the right to say what ought to be done. 
power is the ability to make things happen. So in, in, in the personal case, your doctor has the authority to prescribe a course of treatment for you, but he doesn't have the power to make you do it, only you do. Well, similarly, in the Middle Ages, to take an example, authority was very concentrated in the church and in the crown, but power was very diverse, very diffuse throughout society. With us today, in the modern state, it's the reverse. Uh, authority is diffuse. It's to the point almost of invisibility. And in places like Mexico, <laughs> beyond invisible. And power is concentrated. Now, the problem with a setup like that is that it can't really endure. Power can assert itself in the immediate, but over the long run, it requires some sort of transcendent authority that its subjects will, will accept. And that, at the end of the day, and this goes back to your mandate of heaven, uh, consciously or otherwise, if a ruling class believe they have lost authority or that they don't have it, and they can only either, they either have to assert themselves by power alone and just say, fine. Or, in, in which case, they'll, they'll pop along until somebody smacks them or smacks them out and replaces them. Or, uh, they'll quietly take their leave and go the way our wasps did. And of course, the, the crisis, I would say, of the modern world in many, many ways is a crisis of authority. So do you, th you think that the, the wasp decline was a crisis of authority before it was a crisis of power? Oh, yes. Uh, I, th I think that the, the self-doubt that they had was magnified, uh, even, by, even by the exercise of power. Because you mentioned our interventions in Latin America. Well, you know, there was a huge anti-imperialist lo lobby against them. In 1898, uh, we uh, went to war with Spain on the flimsiest of excuses. And as it, 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 with 2020 hindsight, it wasn't even an excuse because the Spanish didn't blow up the main, which presumably we would have found out if we had been willing to wait and make inquiry as opposed to presuming. Um, but when that war is over, suddenly we're a colonial power. We have Puerto Rico. We couldn't very well take Cuba because supposedly we were fighting for their independence. So that was, we had to part with Cuba. We took Puerto Rico, Guam, and of course the Philippines. And I don't think people realize what a crisis in the American mind the war in the Philippines was. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty hard to disguise that as a liberation war. Uh, I think famously, well, I'm, I'm I'm forgetting the name here, but one of the generals purportedly when they, they land there uh, kind of gives this comment of just kill everything over 10, you know, over 10 years old. Uh, and, yeah. you know, it's they're coming, the soldiers landing in the Philippines are coming with the mindset of a conqueror not a, you know, sort of national liberator making a new republic or something like that. Yeah, and it was the, it was the same when we snatched Hawaii uh, and uh, American Samoa. So, you know, you know, you look at these things and if you're a wasp and you're a sincere person, you say, you know, what would Washington and Lincoln have said? Um, they might not have been too happy.
So here's an interesting question, though, because it seems like within America, the wasps have no problem developing a conquering mindset, right? And even to a degree, like their relationship with the rest of the Americas. I mean, within America, it's straightforward, right? Westward colonization, manifest destiny, uh, you know, you're turning the new immigrants uh, into white Protestants and you're effectively waging a war against the the native uh, populations as you push the frontier forward. Uh, and, you know, even, you know, sort of so-called enlightened people, you know, you read some of the uh, abolitionists and their vision for the post-abolition world is that both black and native populations effectively disappear out of the Americas or out of the United States, at least afterward. So they, there's no problem like they, the, the, the mindset of the conquer and the development of uh, an, an ideology basically to justify conquest within America seems to be no problem for them. Um, and then, you know, they kind of managed to get to this this sense that we are like the stewards of the Americas. We are not allowing any other foreign power, which basically means any Europeans to do any more colonialism here. But there's one theory where ideology is basically just the product of power, right? And so if there was this chance to increase their wealth and power and empire, uh, you know, through the Americas or in, in Asia, uh, you would kind of expect that the wasps and the American ruling class would just develop the ideology to justify it. But it seems like, you know, the, the, the real history here proves that the ideas do matter in a sense. Like there was empire that did not get built because this class sort of refused you know, it was unacceptable to them to sacrifice certain commitments as a culture and, and you know, in their ideology that would have actually let them have a lot of material gains. Well, it, it, it was not, uh, as I say, there was a, a good deal of sincerity in the construction of the American idea. And the the problem you're faced with if you hold it is... Again, you have this sort of evangelical faith pushing you to make everyone Americans, but by the same token, you have the with the other half of your head, you're saying people have to be free and able to choose their own rulers. Well, and these two things are a constant war uh, in the American psyche and certainly in the psyche of the wasp. Uh, you know, when when uh, our friend Woodrow Wilson said, we have to make the world safe for democracy. There's a huge contradiction in that, a self-contradiction. It's And it epitomizes the problem. It's like Mr. Bush Jr.'s uh, global uh, democratic revolution. Right, yeah, the first regime change happened in Western Europe, the first American-led regime change. Yeah, and that, I mean, you, you, you who are we to change regimes? Uh, it, it, these are contradictions that as we have gotten older and bigger and more powerful become more and more difficult. Uh, and, and then similarly after World War One, uh, we, Wilson oversees the construction of a, of a settlement in Europe that cannot possibly survive in the long run without continued and constant American presence in Europe. Uh, having done that, the American people and certainly the American Congress 
rebel and say, no, we want nothing to do with Europe. They can take care of themselves. So they're left with this artificial setup that will not survive more than a decade or two. And, uh, you know, Winston Churchill, who was hardly what you would call pro-German or pro-Austrian, uh, several times laid the responsibility for World War II, in Europe anyway, at Woodrow Wilson's feet. Because he said if he had not insisted on getting rid of the Habsburgs and the Hohenzollerns and the Wittelsbachs and all them, uh, Hitler would never have arisen. But so couldn't you also frame this in a way that, you know, uh, the problem with this class was not that they had the empire, but that having the empire, they refused to accept that fact, right? Yes, there is like one one narrative one can take on this where, oh, America should have stayed true to the whole, you know, no permanent allies or enemies, no expansionism and so on. But we are basically not there anymore. And I, I sort of wonder sometimes if on the right, I guess you had people like Ron Paul and the left like Bernie Sanders, but the, the narrative that America should not have an empire is sort of, it's a bit like Cato, right, at the very tail end of the Republic. Well, okay, I guess, sure, it's nice to have this principle that Rome should go back to these Republican virtues, but... I'm sorry, you you fought the wars. You now have provinces all over the Mediterranean. You are an empire. And it's kind of like you can either, you know, recognize that fact and be a good empire, or you can refuse to take responsibility, and then you'll be probably a more chaotic, more corrupt, more uh, a worse empire. And... If, you know, and eventually in the Roman arc that I'm using here, Augustus comes along and he does the reforms and Rome becomes an empire and they sort of own that fact. And, you know, could it not be that had the wasps actually updated their worldview to accept the fact that they now were, you know, an empire, that America was that kind of power? It wasn't just this kind of lone, you know, republic in the world uh, that they actually might have been a more long-lasting and more effective uh, ruling class. Like, I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Well, the problem you've got is that it goes back to what their original original purpose was, their original animating principle. You look at successful empires, uh, and we can use four examples, the British, the French, the Spanish, and the Portuguese. They were, the, the three of them initially, uh, were expansion expanding for uh, religious reasons as much as anything else in the in Spanish America from the time of the conquest when it, when it settled down shall we say until independence you're talking about 250 years of administration with a minimum of physical force they didn't have a lot of troops and yet they were able to peacefully with very few rebellions actually uh, they were able to peacefully administer a huge swath of territory from Buenos Aires to San Francisco. And they were able to do so, one, because of the, uh, of the Catholic faith, frankly, and its, its place in their society. Secondly, because of the image of the king. And thirdly, because they're, uh, they were very good at indirect rule. So one thing that's forgotten today is that in Spanish times, the Indian villages ruled themselves uh, as direct feudatories of the Spanish king. 
people forget this. It was very similar in Brazil and in France, uh, up until the French Revolution, the places that they colonized, Louisiana and Quebec, Senegal, a few other places, parts of French India, uh, oddly enough, they followed the same, the same policies. And those areas today are still very French, although, as with Brazil and, and uh, uh, Spanish America, they may be politically independent, but culturally they remain very much French, Spanish, Portuguese, and to a lesser degree, because of the differences with Anglicanism and Calvinism, the British, nevertheless, were still very successful in uh, leaving their imprint. But they all had, as I say, transcendent missions, literally, in their minds, divine ones. Our rulership did not. Their, their God was the God of the Enlightenment and was very vague. And once he was replaced with the social Darwinism, we were back on to, why are we here? What are we doing this for? Um, you know, one of the things that I've, I've, I've thought very, very funny in, in recent uh, months has been the assault on various WASP institutions in the country, particularly of a cultural or environmental nature, against their WASP founders for their frequent eugenicism, which became a big part of the uh, of a section of the WASP faith in the last part of the 19th century, connected again to social Darwinism. And I find, I find this very ironic uh, because of the, uh, uh, so many of the people who push this are great allies of Planned Parenthood, which is probably the single, the single remaining, <laughs> single remaining wasp eugenicist foundation with a huge, uh, a huge cachet in American life today. These things, the, the irony is great. But I guess the point I'm making is that it would not have been possible for them to do as you suggest. Because in their worldview, there was no, no room for it. If we are not bringing freedom and, and truth and civilization, then what are we bringing? And if we're not bringing it, we have no business being there. Right. And it's the difference, I guess, between what the... Um... You know, I sort of mentioned the soldiers in the Philippines, right? Their their narrative of what they're there for is completely different from what the the political decision makers taking over the Philippines are promoting, right? You you get Absolutely. these the, the contradictions between the core and the frontier of empire. I mean, you know, the, it's kind of like what's what's actually going on here. Uh, it, it's often very different, and I do, you know, I, I suspect you're probably right, but it also shows the. I think it's like one of the responsibilities of a ruling class is to actually have an accurate understanding of what you're doing in the world, right? That they're, you know, I, I do sort of, one can use terms like world historic or, or, or whatever, you know, there's a lot of, or providential, there's a lot of ways one can think about this, but um, having a kind of like hard-handed understanding of what what your political action is actually doing in the world, right? And it's like, one of the weird things you get in South America is you still get this sort of, you know, aging class of South American conservative that still seems to think of America as 
you know, the 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 anti-communist power, the friend of Christianity and capitalism and all this kind of thing. And obviously, if you went to D.C. and asked people in D.C., hey, guys, are you fighting for anti-communism, Christianity and capitalism? They would just look at you like this alien figure, you know, so the, these things kind of exist all over the place. It, and at the same time, uh, I was just reading a um, an article by this uh, Peruvian uh, lady based in England, Moncada, I think her name is. Uh, but she was complaining in the best uh, whiny voice she could about the proliferation of Hispanidad and uh, neo-Carlism amongst the right in uh, Latin America, and which is a pretty, free, a pretty recent phenomenon. But it makes perfect sense because the only stable past that they have was the Spanish regime. Uh, and so if you're looking, if you're looking to establish a counterweight to uh, what's going on today in terms both of indigenismo and uh, neo-communism, what else do you have? Yeah, I mean, so that's where you get these strange occurrences like Peru at the moment where you have, uh, it's like the, it's sort of the, the decision is neoliberalism on the one hand or at least let, let's say the ideological cover is neoliberalism on the one hand and this sort of, you know, socially conservative, semi-pro-Catholic uh, socialism on the other hand. Uh, you know, I, I tend to think that one shouldn't actually pay too much attention to the ideological covers. I think you should actually just look at, you know, who, who the people and who the interests behind these things are. But, you know, there it is. There, there is a narrative that that is going on there. I, I did want to make one other point, and that, uh, that is that uh, I was just thinking uh, in your hometown of Toronto, in the Anglican Cathedral, uh, St. James, there is a stained glass of uh, George V done for his Silver Jubilee in 1935. And it has the royal family, and then peoples representing the entire British Empire in stained glass. Interesting. It's, the, it's yeah. the most astonishing. It's it's quite it's very pretty. You get to see Edward VIII as Prince of Wales, so I mean, you you don't see him in stained glass very often. But it does speak to what Anglo Toronto thought of itself in 1935. Thirty years later, all different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and and maybe that's um you know the the, the speed of that it's. Uh we could talk a little bit just about what, uh, you know, especially in the 20th century, the, the these narratives of decline that you're talking about, you've kind of mentioned social Darwinism already, and you have Teddy Roosevelt, you know, on the one hand, writing these uh, letters and essays about the decline of, you know, he calls it the revolutionary stock um, on the one. So you have this on the one hand, and then you kind of have this more, this cultural commentary from from the Adamses and from other writers uh about the the you know oh our class has lost its energy you know we we are we're just kind of concerned with frivolous things but basically this this set of decline narratives seems to take over the wasp consciousness and i i'd be interested to hear if you think there was kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of a sort going on there like if if you grow up you know a whole generation and all you hear from like 1930 to 1960 is that your class is doomed like why are you going to put any effort into your institutions um so what, what's your your take there well yeah i mean it's certainly not going to encourage you is it uh 
and it 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 has a uh, you you know in our in the United States of course we had similar pre narratives amongst the Catholic aristocracies in places like California and Louisiana and Texas and Arizona and New Mexico and Florida now, when the um, Americans took over these people were pushed out of the way uh, and produced a literature in, in French and Spanish of decay and decline. Uh, and that's one reason why there's a very particular sort of weird nostalgia in places like New Orleans and uh, Santa Fe and San Antonio, uh, which is, is oddly enough cognate to the, uh, to the feeling of wasp decline even though it was essentially brought about by the ancestors of the current wasps. So it's, you know, when you, you think of the uh, of things like Ramona or uh, uh, George Washington Cables writing about the, uh, the uh, Creoles in New Orleans, you, you, very similar stuff. And again, kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, it... It, it never has to be that way. Uh, again, I'm not a determinist. I, I do believe in free will. You think that the wasps could have kind of found some sort of a rebirth, even as late as like the, the 1920s, the 1930s? Oh, I, I, I believe so. I, I do believe so. And I mean, I, again, I think of Ralph Adams Cramp uh, and people like him. If you read their writings, uh, they certainly were keen on something of that sort happening. Uh but unfortunately, it wasn't enough of them. And the other thing is that they began to feel the need to conform to the mainstream. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever seen that uh, wonderful film, uh, Metropolitan, by Whit Stillman, which is a... I haven't, I haven't seen the whole thing, no. I've seen clips of it. No, uh, it's a great picture and really an epitome of the wasp decline uh, narrative. Uh, Whit Stillman having uh, taken the, the role of A.R. Gurney and uh, Louis Auchincloss, who were the, the great practitioners of the art before. But uh, there's a, uh, a, a wonderful line, which I think I quote in my article, if I remember correctly, uh, where one of the characters says that, uh, you know, they're, they're all doomed to fail uh, because of their backgrounds. And... Uh, Later on in the film, though, they meet another older person of a similar background. They'll talk with him, and he said, well, I think you're going to have to accept the fact that uh, we very often just fail without being doomed. <laughs> and I, 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 I do believe, though, that when you look at the way their institutions have gone, again, St. Ronald's Sex, the Ivy League, uh, they go on and on about how diverse they are and so forth. And yet, at the same time, they work very strongly to cookie-cut their graduates into a new paradigm, which, and they can't see it, they're unconscious of it, but it is just as insistent as the old paradigm was on conformity. You know, when you when you say that you're going to completely, definitely eliminate all the terrible old stuff and everyone will have to conform basically to the new, you're being quite as dictatorial as what you accuse your predecessors of being. Mm -hmm. So 
I, I want to, we're, we're kind of getting into the last, um, the last few minutes of the podcast here. And I think one of the things I'd like to talk to you about at the end here is what does it actually take for uh, an upper class to actually have the consciousness to act as an elite? And by that, I mean to act in ways that have, you know, they're not just doing the day-to-day of maintaining whatever little patch of institution they have, but they're actually looking to act on history and to, to found new things. And, and it seems like this is kind of the thing that the the wasps sort of lost. Um, you know, may, maybe you could even argue that the the kind of like modern versions of their ideology or their progressivism or social Darwinism or whatever, there there's a little bit of, you know, protesting too much in it. It's like, well, you you actually used to impact history more than you do now that you're you're kind of role playing these these super powered ideologies of you know world historic analysis or or what have you. Um, I just want to read here actually. Uh, so this is John Winthrop's famous "City on the Hill" um, sermon that he gives. So you know, for those listening, if you don't know who he is, John Winthrop was. Uh, governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It's one of the first, one of the first major waves of English colonization in the Americas. This is around 1630, um, and he's basically talking about, you know, what is the sense of mission? And you know, I, I'll just kind of give a few lines here, um, not kind of a single block quote, but uh, you know, the Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us as His own people, and will command a blessing upon us in all our ways. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us when ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies, when he shall make us a praise and a glory. Uh, you know, we shall consider, we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Uh, and then kind of a warning as well, right? Uh, if, if they fail, uh, he says, we shall shame the faces of many of God's worthy servants and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us till we be consumed out of the good land whither we are going. So, you know, there's this sense, it's a sense of mission, but it's also a willingness to give up what's come before and sort of cast, you know, they are literally physically casting themselves into the hands of providence. I mean, the the psychology of the Puritan settlers is basically that, you know, the, the wild Americas are effectively ruled by the devil, right? They, they are literally settling in a land that is ruled by the devil, uh, that is full of, you know, quote-unquote pagan Canaanites, you know, that was sort of the, the approach, and yet they have the sense that they are, you know, they are the servants of God. And this is where they should go. And, you know, uh, whether or not one believes that the the sort of theological priors there, that is a, a sense of mission. And, you know, my my sense of these, the, the sort of, let's call it like the pro-WASP uh, counter-narratives that were trying to happen, this, this restorationist impulse doesn't quite seem to match up as I look at it to John Winthrop's impulse, right? Like, the, the the comparison I draw here, there's there's one way you can go about this where it's like, well, we need to gain back this kind of glory that we had before, and the way we do that is by kind of lionizing. You know, we have to sort of uh, pick up some kind of old social mores, or we have to we have to like do things more like they used to do them in the past, or make new institutions, or some or, or rather. Uh, you know, re refound the old institutions. Uh, you know, we we kind of have to find 
externals in the past and do them harder and do them more. And, you know, you, you can kind of think of the, the late Roman Empire, right? The emperors, uh, you know, some of the emperors when Christianity is growing kind of blame blame the imperial troubles on the fact that the old cults have been abandoned. But obviously no one ever manages to restore the old cults. And it's, it's you know, th there's a kind of restorationism which seems like it can become the cargo cultism of, of the past. But here we see this other sentiment, and I would just describe it as like, you know, we are putting ourselves in the hands of God, effectively. We, you know, if God, if God's will, basically, is that we should do great things, then he'll show us the tools. And it's this, it's almost more ascetic in some ways, right? It's like, you are not overly attached to what came before, because you have the confidence that if Providence wants you to achieve in the future, it will give you the tools. Even if you have to remake everything, right? These guys abandon their whole society and they're going to be remaking everything here in the Americas. And so I, I kind of, you know, that, that difference, let's say, between the, the restorationist impulse and the, the kind of the providential impulse, let's call it. Um, do, you, do you think that the Wasps lost that second impulse like i i'd like to hear if you think this is a valid line of critique of of this sort of restorationist thing that we've talked about uh, in in this podcast well i i would agree I, that is to say unless if you want an elite you're the only way you can have an elite and it's important to remember this there is no elite that ever existed for any length of time that was either a true or b really successful that A, did not believe in God, and B, did not feel that whatever advantages they had that put them in a position to do anything at all uh, were not given by him for a purpose, as a tool, not a means to, an, uh, not an end, but a means. Um, if they believed that, then of course, those tools became actually a matter of service. A question of service. Uh, the the and now I'm going back to the Middle Ages, but of course it was also true in the, with the French, the Spanish, and the Portuguese, and to a degree the English. The idea is the the idea was rather that authority does not exist for itself; it's a means to an end. Obedience to authority does not exist for itself; it's a means to an end. The liberty of the subject is not. A me is not an end in itself, but a means to an end. And in all, all of those cases, the end is the accomplishment of God's will in the world. Um, obviously, how people conceive of that God differs from society to society. But without that absolute assurance that everything they have has to be put to that end, and pursuit of that end, uh, they will not be able to endure in the long run. And there will be no authority, there will only be power. And without authority, you cannot have an elite. And without God, you cannot have authority. Um, it's just, there's no way around it, historically speaking. Um, I'm not much of an abstract thinker, you see. And very often, when the historian and the philosopher talk, and examine various historical events, the philosopher will say, well, it didn't have to turn out that way. 
And the historian looks and shrugs and says, well, no, it didn't have to. But it did. It usually does. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, much as I enjoy flights of theory, I, I kind of like empirical reality. I, it, it's, it's another failing of mine. Well, you know, I think that if you look at um, the American landscape, you know, as as declined in a lot of ways as the, the kind of ruling institutions are, I tend to honestly take the view that part of why they survive is that they still have the highest sense of authority of, you know, they're kind of the apex predator in that game still in, in the American landscape. I mean, you know, and it's partially this, this, the impulse of thinking of oneself as a rebel or a heretic, right? I think, I, I, I think there's something in the culture here where, where people really want to be that underdog, but it's kind of a trap, right? Because if you primarily think of yourself as a heretic or a rebel, you are outside the bounds of legitimacy, right? Like we, we have the sense of, oh, you know, the underdog wins out and that's sometimes true but if you win out it's kind of because you were closer to the truth or to something real than than your opponents were and i think that's you know maybe what happened in the the successful rebellions but that does that is clearly not the case now right and and say what one wants about the new york times or about the white house or about harvard uh these are institutions which still so, sort of, I think they very explicitly see their role as one of moral authority. Oh, and, yes. you know, it's, these people yes. have said things which are outside the bounds of legitimacy or, you know, these thoughts are illegitimate or uh, the, you know, they, you know, they have, uh, let's, you know, to use Catholic language, they have the role of the magisterium in American life and they have that role self-consciously. And, you know, a lot of people from a lot of different, you know, sides of pol- or a lot of their political opponents will kind of criticize that, but this is the nature of how it has to work, I think. And in that sense, until you have someone else who who sort of has a greater concentration of authority, what exists now will continue to exist. I, I think you're right. Uh, well, the only way it will stop is if it becomes so stupid and so incompetent, it falls apart of its own weight which does happen from time to time. Uh, but the, the having said all of that, though, and I, I'll touch once again on your restorationist versus providentialist uh, dichotomy. In looking around Europe and the Americas and the other daughter countries, Australia and New Zealand and the rest of them, you know, I feel a little bit like I'm looking at Sleeping Beauty's castle. You know, you have a feeling that if you just do which lips to kiss, which sword to pull out of which stone, which challenge to utter, you could wake the thing up. But I suspect, again, that to do that, it means going back to the thing that caused these things to be in the first place. Or to put this another way, I think it's a wonderful thing to follow Emily Post's etiquette, but it's not an end in itself. And to make etiquette real, you've got to go back to the principles that started it in the first place. And then it'll become real of its own of its own accord, as it were, because it, it developed of its own accord. Western civilization, as we see it, was not planned. It was 
the result, the byproducts of the pursuit of higher aims. Yeah, well, and I think it's even it, it's even more than just principles. There's something like the the, the correct type of spirit uh, in in a way, right? Like the, the the Italians were not going to bring back Rome. Like it wasn't going to happen. The people who tried to bring back Rome were these like northern barbarians who who figured out like the cargo cult of Rome, and, but then then kind of gained the you know the the both the thumos and the authority to actually make it real and right they founded new new civilizations and i i tend to think that you know the problem with the restorationist the restorationist impulse in a way is there's too much focus on the the kind of like intellectual thing the the intellectual end of what came before and i mean you know that is my natural interest as well but the you know the sorts of people who who founded these places were uh, you know they they kind of had a certain type of spirit right like you you can know all you want about a certain kind of regime but if you're not the sort of person who throws yourself onto the frontier god is probably not going to give you the the keys to the new civilization or or anything like that well you're you're not likely to be daniel you're not likely to found boonsboro if you're not daniel boone Right, right, exactly. It's it's that sort of thing, you know. Maybe as a closing question here, um, uh, sort of we uh, we kind of were making the point as we promoted this piece that uh, there there's not much purpose in just uh, you know romanticizing like the the old institutions, but what we need to do is learn the lessons of history, and one of those lessons I think is that America has never had another national ruling class, right? Like there has never been a replacement of the kind of unified cultural familial political ethos that the wasps were um, no and it can't be accomplished for its own sake in other words it's it's not going to do to say well what we need is a new unified ruling class so how do we build that right right you kind of you sort of put yourself into the into god's hands for something else and it may be the case that he tells you to do this, but that's and yeah, makes it it makes it possible, right? So, do you you know do you think that America, like, given that there has been right, there's been a bunch of demographic turnover in the last hundred years. There's been cultural turnover. You you know you you have you have the old institutions, but you also have you know Hispanidad, so to speak, moving north. Do you think that America will ever? have another class of this sort or or you know do you think it's too far gone or it's impossible to tell like how do you look at the future here it's it's really impossible to tell you know i i, I wrote a uh, i wrote a sort of i can't call it utopian or dystopian but i did write a sort of looking backwards kind of novel uh i don't really think anything remotely like what i described whatever occur in real life i really let's put it this way America what now, is the novel? Uh, it's called Star Spangled Crown. America is filled with all sorts of possibilities as she's ever been. Uh, she is a collection of some of the best human and natural material God ever put in one area. Um, but without any really deep unifying uh, principle. And that, that's always been our problem, as I've indicated earlier. In a way, it was sort of the Pinocchio of nations, waiting for something to make us into a real boy. Uh, 
as a Catholic, I'm sure you can guess what I think that would be. Um, but what, whether that will happen or whether we'll break up into pieces, I don't know. I know what I, I know that the country that I was born in no longer exists and it's deader than Austria-Hungary. Um, and that, on the one hand, I can't say I'm surprised given what I know about its history and so on. But on the other hand, it hurts like hell. But one thing is certain, and that is, um, again, if you hold the set of beliefs I do, that uh, God's will will be accomplished one way or the other. The question is whether it's whether we help or it's in spite of us. And that, that, is, uh, that ultimate uh, decision is left up to each of us as individuals. And then, of course, collectively. Yeah. And I mean, there are other regimes in the world which think about the, the sort of elite cultivation thing a lot more explicitly. You know, I, I don't know if there's a market in China, for example, for the this kind of like, you know, historiography of the American elite. But I suspect that if there isn't, uh, someone who wanted to do that translation would probably find a, a ripe readership uh, there because, you know, we we recently published a piece on Wang Huning who's sort of this, uh, you know, gray eminence behind uh, not just Xi, but several of the last Chinese leaders. And one of the, the major turns in, in his ideological path was traveling through America. He, he writes this book about it as well, and it, it kind of becomes haunted by what he sees in the American landscape and comes to China at precisely the right time and does begin this this project of elite cultivation and of, you know, this very intentional uh, effort to create a political leadership class in China, which resists what he calls Western decadence and what he sees as the failures of of America's elites. So, you know, I just sort of bring this up to point out, even if America doesn't have any real, you know, sort of player who's able to act on these observations, other societies do. And uh, and they will do so. They do. I, I think it's all that you mentioned China. I'll just say, incidentally, I think it's interesting the way the figure of Chiang Kai-shek has sort of resurrected on the mainland in a, in a strange and minor way. You know, again, these things are fascinating to watch. Um, they're less threatening when you're not living through them personally, of course. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Somehow it's so much easier when they've already happened and they're in a book. But <laughs> well, you'll uh, that that's why you've been put in interesting times, Charles. Uh, you can write the book uh, at the close if I survive. <laughs> but no, seriously. To close, I, I I'll just say that um, the in a way, because the, the, the wasp was bound up with the country into which I was born, I can't say for all of their faults that I'm happy about their demise. Um, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, when you consider how many of our, our current problems either came about directly because of them or because of their relinquishing of power, um, well, I don't know what goes around comes around. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, you the, the 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 cycle kind of continues. Yeah.
Okay, well, Charles, uh, this has been a, a super interesting discussion. Um, I want to say thanks again for your, your contribution and for taking some time today to talk to us. Uh, you know, I, I, I do think that this this sort of hard look, I think a lot of American history tends to be still colored by the, you know, the civil cult, basically, that we've been discussing. There's There's not a lot of sort of, there's not a lot of American history that does history for America the way Americans do history for other places. You know, we, we've kind of joked before, right? Uh, you, you can kind of imagine an American news service that talked about, you know, the happenings of the American regime, the way that, say, um, NPR talks about what's happening in, uh, you know, Argentina or, or Namibia or something like that. Um, so in, in the spirit of that, uh, I think this is a great piece. At the, at the risk of, uh, of blowing my own horn, I have to admit that I uh, attempted in precisely that spirit when I, uh, to do just that when I wrote uh, uh, Puritan's Empire. Hmm. The, and this uh, is your, your history of uh, sort of, of the, the, the Puritan States. arc in the United States. Yeah, and, uh, it's the history of the States from 1492 to um, uh, 1969. And uh, I, apart from the fact that I wrote it, which is I recommend highly everything I've ever written, obviously, but that aside, uh, the, the, in writing the book years ago, I tried to do just that, to uh, look at the uh, United States as objectively as I could from, admittedly, my own uh, Catholic viewpoint, uh, which I, I made no apologies for. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, and in this sense, I don't think the problem is actually so much... Um you know, a lack of quote-unquote objectivity. It's that the the subjectivity comes from one lens, yeah. um, which is why, yeah. you know, at, at Palladium we do we do try to do, you know, highlights of what is China saying about America? What is Russia saying about America? I think that these, you know, and again, one can't take them as just sort of the gospel truth either, but no, it's, no. it's something that most other countries, you know, any country that is not a great power pretty much the normal state is hearing what other people think about you. But, yeah, you know, if you live in one of the great powers, you're kind of cushioned from that. And that is itself a source of, you know, um, maybe failures in, in your consciousness, let's say. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I'd also say that, uh, I'd also say that the, uh, the, um, one of the, one of the hallmarks of our American mentality is the low, the low uh, prestige we put on the diplomatic uh, profession. Uh, the fact that uh, career diplomats, and no, I was never in the State Department, so this isn't personal bellyaching, but a career diplomat knows that he will never, ever get one of our best embassies because those always go to political appointees based on how much money they've, dedicated, they've donated to the presidential campaign. Uh, and that means that you're, it, it shows two things. One, the real, the ultimately the lack of interest we have in foreign countries. And two, uh, it means that your brightest and best are not all that likely to go into the State Department from, you know, just from the get-go. If, if it's quite obvious there's a ceiling as to how far you're going to go, why go there? Well, I think on that note, Charles, uh, we can wrap it up for now. So right. thanks again for, for your, your time here today. 
Um, Thank you. And, you know, definitely if anyone is inspired, uh, we're always looking for interesting pieces here at Palladium that that give us some of this deep history of of, of America, of its institutions, of its ruling class, stuff that can take us beyond this, this sort of uh, cargo cult lens uh, of the country and show us what actually happened. I take it that dull, dull and shallow aren't going to cut the mustard. Right, exactly. Okay, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, Charles was one of our uh, contributors to Palladium 4. So again, uh, if you're interested in getting your copy, you can still subscribe. Uh, it's palladiummag.com slash subscribe uh, for one of the membership tiers there. Uh, and again, this is a quarterly publication. So uh, if you subscribe now, you'll be getting those print editions four times a year. They come with uh, old and new content, an anthology of writing, and with custom art and design. So thanks again, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.